0: Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. It's page 853 in the Bibles that are provided in the chairs. I encourage you to open your Bibles and keep them there. We refer to them often. It's 853 in the Bibles and the chairs. Have you ever thought, what is it about Jesus that has created such a following? I mean... Isn't it mind-boggling to think about that for almost 2,000 years, billions and billions of people from all around the world identify themselves with his name, his. According to the Pew Forum for Religious and Public Life, they did a study in 2010, and they reported that there were 2.1 billion professing Christians alive in the world in 2010 2.18 billion professing Christians throughout the world whose entire population is roughly 7 billion in addition to that the recorded number of Christians who have been martyred from 33 A.D. to 2000 A.D. Now, again, this is the ones who have been recorded. This is not counting the last 12 years. It's almost 70 million people. That's 70 million people who died in profession of their faith. They were unwilling to renounce Christ, and they died for it. 70 million. How could this be? How Could there be so many people who identify themselves with a rural town carpenter who's not just a carpenter but was a condemned carpenter, a crucified carpenter? It's not just because he professed to be the Messiah, the Christ you study history, you realize that within a hundred years of Jesus' life, there were dozens and dozens of men who professed to be the Christ, who professed to be the Messiah. And they were jailed and they were killed and no one remembers them. There have been many religious sages who have been honored and worshipped, but none because they died a horrific and brutal death. Today we have celebrities with millions of adoring fans, but very few of them are willing to take on the name of that celebrity, or give up all they have, or travel across the globe, or even give their lives, being unwilling to renounce the name of the one they love. So how is it that this no-name son of a rural town carpenter has risen to such notoriety that billions upon billions of people over two millennia on a calendar that bears witness to his very name, his very existence, all around the globe have followed him? Almost 70 million have died. No one has come close to having that number of books written about him. Not even close. And so how could this be? This goes far beyond the wildest rags to riches story that we so often love. This goes well beyond the idea that the victor tells the story of history. This is phenomenal. This is extraordinary. This doesn't just happen. So how did it happen? Well, it didn't happen because Jesus just died on a cross. Lord knows how many people have died on crosses. It wasn't simply that he was a religious or moral leader who died an unjust death because he would just be at that point one among millions of unknown priests and holy men who took stands for their faith and for their morals and died unjustly, and no one remembers them. At best, they are a name and not an unknown number. But martyred shamans aren't worshiped. Jesus is. 70 million followers, including priests and monks and pastors and missionaries and men and women and children, have given their lives in worship to him. And so, how could it be? It's not because he died. It's not because he was a good and moral religious teacher. Then how? How could this be? The reason why billions and billions of people have hoped in him, the reason why millions of people have given their lives, they have given up their perishable lives in order to put on the imperishable is because Jesus rose from the grave. Everything about Christianity, hangs upon the resurrection. Everything. From the very core of the doctrine of Christianity to its long-standing global expanse. From the very number of those who are willing to give their lives in the hope of something greater to the very questions and doubts that you have this morning about Jesus' death and resurrection. Everything hangs on the resurrection. Friends, I I know we live in an age of skepticism and science that tells you that the resurrection is impossible, that there's no way that that could happen. So if you're here and you have questions about Jesus' death and resurrection, you're in good company. You are. In fact, as we read this text, you're going to find that you're in far better company than you originally thought. We've all been influenced by the self-contradiction of this age of skepticism. But you know what? Jesus' resurrection challenges all that. See, Jesus has risen. And the empty tomb challenges us to respond in faith. So let's look at our passage. Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. It says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him, that is, Jesus. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Jesus has risen, and the empty tomb challenges us to respond in faith. In fact, the empty tomb provides us with four challenges this morning. The first is that the empty tomb confronts our hopelessness. In chapters 14 through 15, Mark has given us a sideline view of the greatest injustice that ever happened in the history of the world. Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, was betrayed, was abandoned, was denied by his closest friends. He was delivered over by the religious leaders of the day who condemned him because they feared him, they were jealous of him. He had taught with authority, not the way they did. He did things that only God could do, things that they couldn't explain. And in their jealousy, jealousy, they delivered him over to the Gentiles who mocked him and beat him and spit on him and nailed him to the cross. Mark allowed us to see firsthand as Jesus suffered horribly under God's just and holy anger in order to bring sinners to God. And when he died, we saw that the first two people to really receive the blessing of this were two of the very men who had participated in his death. There's the Roman centurion, his executioner, and Joseph of Arimathea, a councilman. The whole council had condemned and handed him over. For the centurion, his faith was displayed in his confession. Truly this man was the son of God. For Joseph, he was giving up everything, risking everything, so that he might go and ask for Jesus' body, that he might lay him in his own tomb. We also saw last time that because it was so late and the next day was the Sabbath, Jesus' burial was rushed. Not everyone got to pay their respects in the way that they would have liked. And that brings us to these three women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, which is Jesus' mother and Solomon together they were the first mentioned in chapter 15 verses 40 through 42 we learned that they had observed Jesus death but at a distance but Mark also tells us about how much they loved Jesus how they followed Jesus how they ministered to Jesus during his three years of ministry in Galilee and in verse 47 we learn that they saw where the tomb was that he was laid and now here in verse 1 after what had to be the most solemn Sabbath that anyone could ever experience, this day of rest, they made their way to the tomb. They decided to go and pay the respects to the one whom they loved, the one who had died. They decided that they would go ahead and take the risk. Their lives were at risk for doing this, and so very early in the morning they made their way to anoint Jesus. Now, they went early in the morning for two reasons. First of all, because of the Sabbath, right? The Sabbath is a day of rest. You can't work on the Sabbath, so they didn't get to pay the respects as, as they wanted. They didn't have time to acquire the spices needed, and so they went to anoint Jesus' dead body on that day. But the second reason is a little bit more selfish. They hadn't paid their respects to him properly because of fear. Remember, they observed Jesus' death and burial at a distance they were afraid to be counted as with him and now they go early in the morning so that no one would see and friends you have to ask the question Well, why not I mean what why take the risk the man whom they had loved the man whom they'd follow the man whom they'd served was dead they saw him buried And so what's the point of risking your life and breaking cultural traditions if the one that you believe came to change all that was dead in the ground? Friends, do you recognize how pertinent a question that is for us today? How many people don't take risk and they don't go against cultural traditions because they believe he's dead or they live like it? And so were they attempting to love and honor Jesus? Yes, they were. Were they showing more faith and taking more risk than the 12 disciples? Yes, they were. But were they filled with fear and grief and worry and hopelessness as they made their way to the tomb that early Sunday morning? Yes, they were. I hope you see that these are not super Christians. They weren't running to the tomb that early morning because they believed it would be empty and they wanted to be the first ones to see it. No, they were hopeless, fearful mourners making their way to a tomb to anoint a dead body. Their grief, their hopes, their dreams, they've been crushed. And though Jesus had told his disciples on five different occasions that he would rise from the grave, these women were not expecting it. They were not looking forward to it. Grief stricken, they somberly made their way to say goodbye to a dead man. They did not understand, nor did they believe his promise that he would rise again. And in these few verses, Mark paints this picture of us so we can identify with their hopelessness. We can identify with their grief and their pain. Very early in the morning, as these faint wisps of light begin to push back the darkness, the women slowly and somberly carry spices to a grave. Friends, this is a funeral procession, slow and somber. And as they made their way, there was no joy in their discussion. There was no hope. There was no life. I'd imagine that it was fairly silent. But the silence was broken as they realized that in their grief, they forgot about the stone. Who would roll it away? They knew that they could not. Mark even gives us a picture of their countenance. They were looking down. Their heads were hung low. How do we know that? Because in verse 4 it says, And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled away. Friends, I want you to try to picture this moment. Picture it in your minds. As the sun began to crest over the horizon, streams of light pouring across the sky, they looked up and they saw that this stone had been rolled back. It had been rolled away. I mean, could you imagine what was going through their heads in that moment? Could you imagine what they were thinking? The awe, the wonder, the surprise, the bewilderment. Imagine the shock of it all as they were standing there. This was not what they expected to find. What had happened to the tomb? Where where was Jesus' body? They looked up to find that a very large stone had been rolled back. And Mark is careful to point out that it had been rolled back and that it was very large so that we would understand that this was God's work. God rolled away the stone. God acted to confront their hopelessness. Now... We could roll this out even more, but I hope that you can see just how much we are like them. It is not as though they were expecting to find that empty tomb. It's not as though believing in the resurrection of the body was easier in that day than it is now. We have this this faulty assumption that people were just kind of, dumb and believed in the supernatural, and it made no sense back then, and that's why they believed in that kind of stuff. But that's not, if you understand history, the way it is. You see, if you were a Gentile who lived in that day, the idea of the resurrection of the body is is blasphemous, because the the philosophy behind, behind the Gentiles was escape from the material. The goal of afterlife, the goal of life after death, is that you be cast away from the flesh, the body. So they would utterly reject the idea of the resurrection. And if you were a Jew, well, some of them believed in a general resurrection, but they believed that it would happen in the last day, when God came to judge the world. So even as a Jew, Even as a follower of Christ, they did not believe in the resurrection. It didn't make it any easier to believe in it then than it is now. Not at all. If they were ever to find that tomb empty, they expected it would happen on the final day, not now. And so they were just as likely to doubt the resurrection as you and me. So we should not be surprised by doubt. Not yours and not theirs. But their doubt, and our doubt, was confronted by God. You know, like these women, we've all been plagued by hopelessness. We've all been crushed when we've lost and suffered and faced unimaginable grief. And we've experienced this even on behalf of those who were in Connecticut this week. Just the idea of such evil and such travesty. I mean, what hope does the world offer in that? And I I would guess that today, every one of you, at one level or another, is struggling with hopelessness. Your life is not going as you intended. Things didn't go. According to plan, you have desires and longings that are unmet and feel like they never will be or never can be. You've all faced grief and pain and heartache. You've been stricken, smitten, afflicted in some sort of way. Every one of us has had to battle this week, maybe even this morning, with hopelessness. We've all failed. We've all sinned. We've all been plagued with shame. We've all experienced grief and mourning. I mean, Mike is not here today because they buried his cousin yesterday. You all have lost loved ones. I know some of you have lost dear grandparents in this past year. I mean, my, uh, Jim and Judy, I mean, think about the numerous challenges that they faced in the past year. Back in March, my grandfather took his own life. Our lives can be full of pain and challenges and setbacks. And the natural response, the response of the world to these difficulties, to these trials, to these afflictions, is hopelessness. What can be done? Nothing. But the empty tomb challenges all of that. It changes all of that. You see, if this was simply a closed universe that operated on natural law, then Jesus would be dead in the tomb. But this is not a closed universe. It's a controlled one. One that is controlled by God one in which we see the God of the universe, the God who created all things and sustains all things, the God that causes your hearts to beat and allows you to draw the very breath that you take, that God is personal. He's interacting within history to redeem a people to Himself. His power, his plan is displayed as he is drawing people to himself. This is a God of change. This is a God who has power to work beyond what is natural, beyond what this world has to offer. He is the only one who can give hope. The empty tomb provides what nothing on this earth can truly give everlasting hope hope for change hope for life and if we understand that then hopelessness does not win it cannot win god does And it's this resurrection hope that actually drives and spurs the Christian faith into the depths of unbelief. Unbelief in the world and unbelief within our own hearts. It's the resurrection hope that allows us to give up our earthly lives because we know this is not all there is. This is not all there is. How do I know? The tomb is empty. There is more to live for than what you can lose here in this life. No matter how painful it is. The tomb is empty. And I pray that this morning that truth would sink into your heart and you would recognize that hopelessness does not have to win in your life. There is hope. Is Jesus rose from the grave. So not only does the empty tomb confront our hopelessness, second, it conquers our unbelief. Let's look at this unbelievable message that we see. Let's start in verse 4. It says, In looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. just as he told you. That stone had been rolled back, not to let Jesus out, but to allow them to go in. These women entered the tomb, and to their surprise, they found this young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side. And we know from the other gospel accounts that this man was an angel. And so these women do what all people do when they're confronted by angels in Scripture. They freak out. Okay, this is no Nicolas Cage dressed in a black trench coat here, though that in itself is very, very distressing. No, they were amazed. They were shocked. They were bewildered. They were upset. They were distressed. And it's amazing what he says to them, minus the first part. The first part seems kind of obvious. First, he tries to calm them down, obviously to no avail. Hey, don't freak out. Then, though they clearly do not know who he is, they've never seen him before, he tells them what they are doing. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. But then he says the most important words that they and that you and I need to hear. He says, he is risen. He is not here. Everything that Jesus had told them would happen, happened, just as Jesus said it would. And five times he had spoke of his own resurrection in the Gospel of Mark alone. There are at least, there's at least one other in the Gospel of John. <clears throat> and now these women are standing in an empty tomb next to an angel who proclaims the heavenly message from God to them. He is risen. He is not here. You know, many people seek to provide evidence to scientifically and verifiably prove beyond some sort of shadow of doubt that the resurrection really happened. Mark doesn't do that. All Mark gives us is see the place where they laid him. And it's shown to three women whose testimony would not be allowed in a court of law in that day. You see, in that day, a woman's testimony meant nothing. Okay? I'm sorry, that's just the day. Celsus, a second century Greek philosopher who hated Christianity, argued against Christianity, and one of his points was he, he argued against Christianity because its eyewitness accounts are based on the testimony of women. He scoffs, And in his writing, that Christianity can't be true because we all know that women are hysterical. These are his words, not mine. But Mark's apologetic for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the culturally unsubstantial testimony of these three women, an empty tomb, and the heavenly message, he has risen, he is not. Mark offers no proof, as the religious leaders had demanded in chapter 15, verse 32, show us that we may see and believe. Mark doesn't confront unbelief with sightings of Jesus from culturally reputable sources. God in his wisdom did not seek to provide unequivocal proof that no one could deny. He confronted unbelief with an empty tomb. Mark's ultimate proof of Jesus' resurrection the word of God. He is risen. He is not here. But in addition to this unbelievable message, the angel gives these women an unbelievable promise. He says, go and tell his disciples and Peter that he will go before you to Galilee. And there you will see him just as he told you. You know, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he shared his last supper with his closest friends. This was an intimate meal, but it was a sober meal. It was a heavy meal. Jesus spoke of his betrayal. He took these elements of the Passover meal, which were meant to symbolize other things, and he he tied them to his own death, to his own suffering. He told Peter of how He would deny Jesus three times. And then in chapter 14, verses 27 and 28, Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. He says this to his closest friends. He says this to those who are most faithful to him. You will all fall away. You will all abandon me. You will all fail. When I am struck down, you will fall away and be scattered, all of you. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus knew that they would fail him. But yet he offers the promise of restoration. He told them beforehand that his resurrection would overcome their unbelief. And now here we see this angel telling these women to go back and to report to the disciples And to remind them of this promise that Jesus had made before his death. That everything that he said would happen, would happen. That he would see them in Galilee. That he would be there with open arms, ready to restore them. Ready to receive them. Ready to forgive them. The ten abandoned him but yet they were to come. And he makes, out this, makes this point to single out Peter. This is Peter, who not only abandoned Jesus, but denied him, bringing curses upon himself as he renounced Jesus three times. If there was ever anyone that seemed like they ought to be beyond Jesus' forgiveness, it's Peter. If there is anyone who was plagued, with the idea that their sin is unforgivable, it's Peter. And yet Jesus says, and Peter. Peter, you come. Peter, come to Galilee. Peter, come and see me. Peter, come. The one who has the power of the resurrection has the power to forgive. Friends, we have all denied and abandoned Jesus. We've all sinned against Him. We've all failed Him. We've all failed to believe. I mean, what is sin but failure to believe God and to try to find our promise and our purpose and our satisfaction and our ambition and our hope and our goals and our future in anything other than Him? Sin is unbelief or belief that God is not enough. We've all sought to live lives for ourselves or to find our identity in anything other than God, whether that be in immorality or in self-righteousness, whether it be in apathy and laziness or worldly ambition, whether that be in self-deprivation or indulging in everything that this world has to offer. We have all tried to live our lives without Him as if this is my world and I am God. And the result of all of our efforts, if we're really honest with ourselves, we know has been nothing but misery and shame and heartache and grief and loneliness and despair and hopelessness. And ultimately, just wrath of God against us. And if Jesus was dead, and that's all that Peter and the disciples would have, you don't go out and preach that. You realize that? If they were under the just wrath of God and Jesus was dead in the tomb, they would not go preach that. But Jesus rose, and he met them, and he forgave their unbelief. The one who has the power of the resurrection has the power to forgive. The resurrection is the triumph of Christ over sin. It proves that he was the Son of God, that everything that he said and everything that he did proves to be true. It proves that God's wrath against sin has been satisfied, that the punishment and penalty for sin has been overcome. It has been overthrown. It is the resurrection of Christ that offers us freedom and forgiveness and reconciliation to sinners who do not deserve it. And so if you're here and you feel like you don't deserve it, guess what? You don't. And you're in great company because no one here does. But every word of Christ proves true rose just as he said he would and he offers the promise of forgiveness and if he offers the promise of forgiveness then nothing can overcome that not even your unbelief you know what your sin is this morning I pray that you confessed it during that time of confession but I hope that you see. You are not condemned. Well, you are condemned, but you don't have to ultimately be condemned. There is hope. Doesn't matter who you are. Right? Whatever your sin is, do not hang on to it in sin, in shame and condemnation. Right? Repent and believe in the resurrection of Christ. Come to him. so the empty tomb confronts our hopelessness it overcomes our unbelief third the empty tomb challenges our fear verse 8 and they went out and they fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment it seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid overwhelmed by what they had just seen and experienced these women didn't shine as beacons of faith did they? no As they fled, they trembled. They were seized by their astonishment. They disobeyed God's word by not telling anyone. And why? Because they were afraid. The truth hadn't sunk in yet, and they were distressed. They were living in fear and not in faith. But we know that it doesn't end that way. All right, we can read the other gospel accounts, we can read the book of Acts, and we can see that something happened. Their fear was overcome. And it was overcome by the many appearances of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, and by the giving of the Holy Spirit. The resurrected Jesus met with them and taught them and comforted them so that by the time he ascended into heaven, they had understood all the scriptures and how they pointed to Jesus. You read about that in Luke 24. In Acts 2, we read of how Christ gave His Holy Spirit to dwell in them, to enlighten their minds, to sanctify their hearts, to guide and comfort them and embolden them to proclaim the gospel so that this ragtag bunch of fearful sinners who cowered in the dark were transformed into bold witnesses willing to give their lives for the sake of Christ. That doesn't just happen if Jesus is in the grave. How did it happen? Because Christ's resurrection challenged their fear. Well, Mark doesn't leave us with the whole story, does he? Now, if you look in your Bibles, you'll see that verses 9 through 20 appear either in a bracket or a footnote. Right? In many of your Bibles, there's this bracketed statement that comes after verse 8. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapters 16 verses 9 through 20. Now I'm going to deal more with this next week, because we'll all be here after December 21st. If not, I've still preached all of Mark. Um, <laughs> but I hope you understand we have thousands and thousands and thousands of Greek manuscripts. Of These letters, the few of the earliest manuscripts, meaning they were the first ones to be written, they didn't include verses nine through 20. And that probably means more than likely that Mark ended in verse eight. Again, I'll deal with more of this next week. You don't have to worry about it unless the Lord should come. But this seems like a strange way to end, doesn't it? I mean, the women fled and told no one. I mean, talk about an abrupt ending—sudden, just boom, done, out. What happened, right? I would take one of Tolkien's extended endings any day over this, <laughs> right? But, but this sudden, shorter ending—you know—it's it, it, led a number of people to think that either 9 through 20 has to be the actual ending, or that the actual ending was missing, or that—that that it's led others that. To believe that in dissatisfaction regarding this abrupt ending, some editor came in later on, just kind of tied the whole thing up with verses 9 through 20. But again, we'll deal with that next week. But I want, I want us to remember that Mark began very abruptly, right? Mark 1.1, 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Then boom, scene changed to John the Baptist, All right, He's not privy to kind of lead us to where he's just like we just kind of follow him along. Bam, 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 bam. Immediately, immediately, immediately. There you go. Like that's his that's kind of the way Mark operates, but he does it for a reason. He did it in chapter one for a reason. I think he ends here in verse eight for a reason. This sudden ending provides a challenge to our fear. You see, we often forget that we're not the original audience that Mark was writing to. Mark had another audience in mind, a bunch of Gentile Christians that probably lived either in or near Rome, Christians who were facing persecution, Christians who were living every day under the fear that today might be their last day of life. They were challenged constantly. Will I deny Christ? Will I stand firm? Their lives were at risk, and Mark ends his gospel with this call by God to go and tell. And yet these women flee in fear. The challenge that it leaves Mark's readers and us with is, will you go and tell or will you run and hide? His readers knew the end of the story because those who were once fearful now became bold. They were the ones who had told Mark's audience. And the question is, would Mark's audience do the same? Would they stand firm in their faith and go and tell, or will they run and hide? Will they run in fear? And what made the difference for these women, for the cowardly disciples who we don't even know where they are, what transformed them from fearful to fearless was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Again, Mark's not interested in telling you a story or wrapping it up in a nice pretty bow or proving to you beyond a shadow of doubt that he simply tells you the truth and then he calls you to respond in faith. He says, do not be afraid. Go and tell of the resurrected Jesus. Faithfulness of Christ requires a bold confidence in the resurrection of Jesus. I want you to think about something. Have you ever thought about how your fear to tell others about Jesus is connected to your own doubt in the resurrection of Christ? Have you ever thought about that? The more confident, the more bold, the more assured we are in the resurrection of Jesus, boy, that gives us unbelievable confidence, doesn't it? To go and tell others. If Jesus truly is risen we believe that he has and, and he is not here then what can man do to us what are we afraid of losing what victory does death have over us if Jesus has risen from the grave and the answer is none there's nothing that will ultimately defeat us because of what Jesus has done you know a bold confidence in the resurrection of christ leads us to say for me to live is christ and to die is gain all of those things that i once thought gain in this life i now count as loss for the sake of christ for the power of his resurrection Because we know that that inheritance that we have in heaven is secure. We know, without a doubt, that we are children of God. We know that whatever we would give up in this life, we would gain 100-fold with persecutions in this life. But it's worth it. The empty tomb challenges our fears. And it also turns all our pains In the end, when we see the resurrected Jesus face to face in our own resurrected bodies, we will find that the worst things that ever happened to us will only end to serve to enhance our eternal delight in Him. Our scars from this life will only serve to magnify our joy and our glory in Him. This is reward. So do not fear. There is only gain in the cross, in the empty tomb. So the resurrection of Christ comforts our hopelessness, or confronts our hopelessness. It conquers our unbelief. It challenges our fears. And fourth, the empty tomb calls us to discipleship. The resurrection of Jesus beckons us to follow him. Look back at verses 6 and 7. It says, he is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. The truth of Jesus resurrection from the dead results in a call to follow Christ. Jesus leads the way and as you go you will see him. Jesus calls them back to Galilee, back to this place where it all began, a place of ministry, a place of everyday life, a place place of gospel proclamation, a place of Mission to the Gentiles, but he wants it to be clear, to see him, you must follow him. Friends, to be a Christian is to follow Christ and not yourself. You are not following Jesus if your pursuit of Christ is to only get him to go with you where you are going. In following Jesus, he will lead you to places that you naturally do not want to go. But you go there all the same. Because what you want more than your own agenda, than your own direction, than your own sense of call is Christ. You want to be with Him, you want to see Him. Christianity is not about Jesus following you, it is about you following Him. Being a disciple of Christ costs. I mean, think about Mark 8, 34 through 38. I know I've gone here frequently, but it is a key passage for us to understand what it means to be a Christian, what it means to truly follow Christ. It says, and he called to him the crowd with the disciples, and he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? But whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes with the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Friends, do you realize that if Jesus died, Jesus was dead if Jesus was just in the tomb this passage means nothing It's irrelevant Jesus is dead Who cares But if he rose there's nothing that is more important To follow Christ we must go where he goes even if that means denying yourself, even if that means you face scorn and ridicule, even if that means a cross, even if that means losing everything that this life has to offer because you know that the whole world is not worth forfeiting your soul. We must follow Him. But here's the thing. When we follow the resurrected Jesus, when he calls you to follow, you can be assured of three things. First of all, Christ will never lead you where he is not already gone. Did you get that? Christ will never ever lead you where he is not already gone. It's not like he says, hey, Phil, I want you to go to this place where I've never been before. You're on your own. Good luck. No. He goes before us. No one will experience more opposition or loss or heartache or suffering for Christ than Christ. No one. Second, if Christ is leading you and you are following, then you can rejoice in the fact that he is always with you, even to the end of the age. It's Matthew 28:20. You are never alone in the call to discipleship. Jesus is always present with you, even when you don't feel it, even when your pain and suffering and heartache is so grief that you feel like you are by yourself. He is present with you. And third, you can set your hope on the fact that in the end, you will see Jesus. In that moment... When you come face to face with the resurrected Christ, you will understand why the call to discipleship has pain and loss and heartache and suffering. In that moment, it will no longer seem as loss, but trophies that magnify the glory of Christ. Let's be clear. Those who long to see the resurrected Jesus must follow the resurrected Jesus. And so this is the challenge of the empty tomb. It is a miracle that serves as a wedge to drive you to a fork in the road. As one commentator put it, the miracles of Mark's gospel come as both gift and crisis. They point to the God who offers new life and they challenge the deepest values and structures of our existence. The resurrection of Jesus is the greatest gift and the profoundest challenge of all. Mark does not attempt to persuade us of its truth or defend it against its critics. The good news of the resurrection is is an invitation to follow Jesus and a promise that those who follow him will see him. Or as Jesus put it, I am the resurrection of the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? There is life in that empty tomb. Faith in the resurrection allows us to die to hopelessness, to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But if Christ has been raised, then the empty tomb overcomes our unbelief. If Christ has not been raised, then we have plenty of reason to fear. But if He has, then we have no reason to fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, we should fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And if that tomb was empty, then it calls us to no longer live for ourselves, but who for our sake died and was raised. This is the challenge of the empty tomb. He is risen. He is not here repent and believe in the good news of his resurrection. Let's pray. Father, I I pray that the glory of the resurrection would be evident in our hearts and minds this morning. I pray that the reality of the empty tomb would peel back our hopelessness, that we would see that there is more than, than what we see and what we live for in this life, that there is so much more awaiting us. I pray that we would recognize that in it there is hope, hope that overcomes doubt and unbelief, hope that overcomes our feelings of being unforgivable. I pray that the empty tomb this morning would challenge our fear, that we would realize that though there is pain and loss in this life, so much more to gain. We're not risking to lose our lives or to lose our lands or to lose our loved ones even for the sake of Christ. And I pray that we would see that empty tomb as a call for us to follow. There are those here who have not followed Christ. I pray they would. For those who are following, I pray that it would make the path all the clearer that they would see that Jesus has gone before them, that Jesus is with them, and that Jesus is at the end, waiting for them. May they give us comfort this morning. May we live in the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray.